This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's the new Isabek from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, September 24th. Today, the Black students fighting for voting access in rural Texas, the implosion of an NFL star, and the projects being sacrificed to build a border wall. I had heard about a case in Texas involving a historically Black university where the students had made allegations of racial bias in the administration of local elections. And that's right in my wheelhouse. And so I wanted to find out more. Amy Gardner covers voting issues for The Washington Post. So Prairie View A&M University is a historically Black university in Prairie View, Texas, which is about 45 minutes or so northwest of Houston. About 9,000 students go to this school, but it sits in a county called Waller County that is about 70 percent white. Waller County has a very long history of racism. And so the, the setting and the scene for this particular story is quite sort of fraught. Ahead of last year's midterm election, a number of students at the university noticed something concerning. Early voting hours in the city of Prairie View were much more restricted than in other wider towns nearby. And it was pretty stark. I mean, there were five days of early voting scheduled in Prairie View versus 11 in another comparably sized city and 12 in two other comparably sized cities. And so it was not difficult for the students to jump to anger. I think a lot of us, especially those who are student leaders and who are civically engaged and know the history of Prairie View and how we have had this ongoing problem for decades, actually. It was no surprise to us. It was just like, okay, here we go again. We're hurt. We're angry. But at the same time, it was kind of a time for us to say, well, this is how we feel. But it really doesn't matter how we feel right now. We have to go to work and we have to find solutions to this problem that we are once again being faced with in this county. Jayla Allen is a third generation student at Prairie View A&M University, and she's a senior this year. She's one of the plaintiffs in this lawsuit. And one of the reasons she's behind it is because she really sees what's going on in Waller County as a continuation of the voter suppression and discrimination that students at this school have seen many times before. What's happened before? There have been court cases, like, for decades. I mean, first of all, Texas had a poll tax and had a law requiring whites-only primaries, which effectively Mm. cut black people out of elections during the Jim Crow era. But even after the Voting Rights Act of 1965, there were efforts specifically in Waller County by either election officials or prosecutors who threatened arrest to intimidate black people and particularly Prairie View students from voting. So there was a residency questionnaire that only students of Prairie View had to fill out in the 1970s and other residents of Waller County didn't have to fill it out. That case went to the Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of the students, affirming the right of students to vote 
away at school. There was a case in the 90s when there was a threat of arrest, and actually 14 students were arrested and charged with improper voting. The charges were dismissed again after some legal action. I mean, it's just sort of over and over again, and in the modern era, too. And then there's a really important milestone that occurred in Waller County that I think people should remember, and that is that Waller County is where Sandra Bland died hmm. in 2015. Sandra Bland is a graduate of Prairie View A&M University, and she was on her way to a new job at the school when she was pulled over by a state trooper for failing to signal a turn, and the, the traffic stop escalated very rapidly. It was caught on video. It helped feed the, the movement that protested police action against black people. And she died in jail, in the Waller County Jail. Uh, it was ruled a suicide, but it was an extremely emotional and painful moment for a lot of black people in Prairie View. So because of this legacy of discrimination, both decades ago and also more recently, when these students looked at something like early voting hours and saw the disparity between the kinds of early voting hours that they had access to versus what the rest of the county had access to, they didn't see it as like an accidental overlook by local election officials. They thought that this was an intentional though more subtle way of enforcing the same kind of discrimination or lack of access to representation that had existed there for a long time. That's right. And what's really interesting is that the county officials who made these decisions, who were mostly white people, including the head of the county commissioners, a man named Trey Duhon, were really upset that they received this reaction. Trey Duhon said that he ran for county judge, as his title is called, in an effort to bring Waller County out of the dark ages, he brought early voting back to Prairie View in 2016 for the first time in many years. And in 2018, he doubled the number of voting machines in Prairie View. And they did have more voting machines than those other places. And so he felt like he was making these gestures that had not been made previously. And so he was a little bit indignant that he was being accused of racism when he felt like he was trying to make changes. And so you wound up with this kind of impasse. When the students went to the county and asked for a change, early voting was already underway. And they said, no. They said, we can't. It's already underway. We can't move machines from one location to another now. They did add some days, but it still didn't equal parity. And the students were still angry. It wasn't enough. They wanted parity and nothing less. So after the students complained to the county, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund contacted them and asked them, how would you like to be plaintiffs in a lawsuit? And they said, heck yeah. And that case is still wending its way through the federal courts in Texas. Is there evidence that the difference in the early voting hour schedule between Prairie View and the rest of the county actually translated into lower turnout for Prairie View and for the largely black community there? No, it's a very good question and a difficult question to answer. Turnout was historic in Prairie View and in Waller and everywhere else in the country last year. And it's really hard to show evidence that students were denied access. But the students and their lawyer say that's not the point. Although we've been given less days, we needed to get our students to the polls and we needed them to vote. So from then on, um, we decided that we were going to get the word out, but we we're also going to create something called pull up to the polls. 
So Pull Up to the Polls was a volunteer effort from um, student leaders who were working on this issue, but also other students on campus who volunteered their services, their gas, and their time to get students to take time between their classes or work or meetings or whatever else they were doing while on campus to get in the car with their peers and to go vote off campus during the times that we couldn't get on campus for early voting. They say, we had to work harder, just like we've had to work harder as long as our people have been on this continent. And if there's a barrier, it needs to come down whether or not we showed the ability to get over that barrier. Did you talk to some of the residents in Waller County, folks who aren't part of Prairie View, and get their take on what they think is happening? I did. I talked to both white people and black people who are longtime residents of the county, and I got, unsurprisingly, two very different points of view. From the African-American residents I spoke to, I heard, you know, sort of almost a defeated attitude. Well, of course it's racist. Well, of course we've been deprived of representation in Waller County. That's the way it's always been here. And from a couple of white people I spoke to, I got pretty strong evidence of racial bias. I mean, I interviewed one man who was really blunt that this was just about the Prairie View kids wanting to, quote unquote, take over the county. Hmm. And, you know, that kind of language is really jarring and kind of makes it really hard to imagine these two groups seeing things in the same way. And I feel like that kind of language speaks to what it sounds like a lot of these students fear is going on at the heart of this, that this isn't just about allocating election machines throughout the county. This is about taking this population, this pretty significant population of black people in a mostly white county and diminishing their ability to be a part of the political process, be a meaningful part of the electorate. Yeah. Judge Duhon said, you know, there's always been this view that if all of the black people in Waller County voted, they would be able to take over. And he was acknowledging that there was a racist aspect to that argument, obviously. And he was acknowledging that that had informed a lot of the policies previously. He had a really hard time seeing what was going on today in the context of that history because he felt so certain that he was trying to do right. What do you think this case says more broadly about voting access in 2020? That it's going to be an enormous battle and that well-funded advocacy groups on both sides, but particularly on the civil rights side, are going to be looking and already are looking for cases to jump on in order to get these cases adjudicated in time for the 2020 elections. I mean, we already know in this case that Judge Duhon has said he's going to do his best to make sure that Prairie View has just as many voting hours as the main voting location in the county courthouse. I mean, that's already a win in a way. There are cases like this going on around the country, and there are going to be more. And I think that there's a strategy, a political strategy here on the part of the civil rights groups and the Democratic Party to fight as many of these battles as they can, because an election that could be decided in inches is going to benefit from court victories. 
Amy, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Amy Gardner covers voting for The Post. Antonio Brown is one of the most prolific wide receivers in NFL history, but he's also one of the greatest characters in league history, and now he's simply just a troubled athlete without a job. That's Jerry Brewer, sports columnist for The Post. In the early years, you thought he was just this fun story, a former sixth-round pick, someone who we thought would be cut from the NFL early on, who worked his way up to being one of the best receivers in the game. He was known for his funny touchdown celebrations. And a one-handed grab is good for the touchdown. Antonio His antics on social media. Bolito. You fresh, baby. But mostly, you thought... Antonio Brown was just a lighthearted, fun guy. But that perception started to change earlier this year. Over the past nine months, Antonio Brown has quit on the got ceiling, frostbite on his feet, had a helmet, and he was fined not only for missing practices, but for confronting general manager Mike Mayock at the practice facility. Brown was released by the Oakland Raiders and picked up by the New England Patriots. But then his story turned incredibly dark. A sexual assault allegation and a lawsuit became public. And then a few days later, Sports Illustrated did a report that detailed all of his disturbing behavioral history. And that included another woman making a claim of sexual misconduct against Antonio Brown. And also that she alleges that he had threatened her over text message. Yes, uh, the, the latest to the story, uh, you know, after the Sports Illustrated report comes out, you know, here's Antonio Brown. He's been basically released from two different teams, traded by Pittsburgh, released from Oakland, already has a sexual assault lawsuit hanging over his head. Is that enough for him to keep quiet and just let things be? No, no, no. Uh, he decides to text message, allegedly, uh, the woman. Uh, and put her on a text message chain with uh, some of his his buddies. And they proceed to uh, send photos of her with her family or children. He, he says that he's essentially going to make her life hell, dig up dirt on her. He calls her a groupie. She and her lawyer forward those text messages to the NFL. The NFL believes it is verified that it is an, indeed Antonio Brown who made those threats. And once word of that got back to the New England Patriots, they said, "Okay, enough is enough. Since you've joined us, this is two allegations of sexual misconduct and you confronted one of the alleged victims. And we should just mention here that Antonio Brown has denied the allegations from both of these women. But what did the Patriots do after this? After 11 days, he played one game in New England, and the Patriots decided, okay, we're going to cut you. Hmm. That's it. You know, now Antonio Brown is unemployed, and he is now saying that he is done with the NFL and trying to make it about the inequitable policing of the NFL, but uh, he has yet to answer for his own alleged sins. So why do you think it is that this series of events that were that were happening to Antonio Brown, that they 
caught so much attention, both from NFL fans and from people who don't even follow the NFL at all? I mean, it is a remarkable case of self-destruction, of of self-sabotage. And it involves a lot of the issues that are consistent with, with problems that the NFL has yet to resolve, specifically the way it reacts to players who are accused of of violence and misconduct against women. I feel like I've seen some folks on Twitter talking about this, basically making the argument that the reason that he got released by the Patriots, the reason that he is now kind of persona non grata in the NFL, is not really because of these most recent allegations having to do with sexual assault, but because of his history of not giving deference to the NFL, of demonstrating loyalty, demonstrating an ability to shut up about your complaints and just toe the line when it comes to whatever whatever team you're on, whatever coach you're playing for, and that that is what laid the groundwork for their for the NFL's current ability to be able to say that we don't really want him here. Do you buy that as an argument? To some degree, I do buy it as an argument. I mean, clearly this is a moment in which the NFL is, quote unquote, protecting the shield, as they like to say. And ultimately, I mean, the the truth of the matter is, is the league in general doesn't necessarily care about what you have done wrong as long as you stay in line with the franchise. Um, Mm -hmm. When you go out and you freelance and you do your own thing and you bring embarrassment to them and... Antonio Brown is, in essence, a guy who the NFL can't control. And that's more dangerous to them than, I mean, any any alleged things that he has done wrong, any lawsuits. Uh, that is why teams are starting to give up on him and why he might have extended unemployment in the NFL now. What does this say about the NFL as an organization? Uh, it says that the league has just inconsistent policies in the way that that it treats players. Clearly, if Antonio Brown weren't a superstar, they would have disciplined him in a way in which it would have never gotten to this point. It, it also it reminds you that while NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell has made himself out to be the one who's going to reform player conduct, there are certain situations that are too messy for him, and he's not willing to step up as the commissioner and really be heavy-handed in enforcing the rules. He has this broad latitude to punish just based on bad behavior or someone who is being detrimental to the league's image. But in this case, he's willing to refrain. When you think about his trajectory and the fact that he— over the last few months, started to spin more and more out of control. Do you feel like part of that is a product of his experience in the NFL, that he is a reflection of the league that ended up making him? I absolutely feel that way. I think he has been enabled because he's such a good player, and that makes him a product of this diabolical machine that the NFL has created. And then I think he also— uh, as he has gone through his nine years in the league, has realized that there's a lot of what he would consider BS that goes on in the league in terms of business. That that promises aren't promises. You know, as he has said in his Twitter rant, 
Uh, you can cut a player at any time. I think he has decided that uh, that he just does not believe in the entire NFL model. I wouldn't blame him for not believing in a lot of the things that the NFL does. However, there has to be a a baseline of of good behavior and of production that makes you an asset to a company. And right now, he is not an asset. Jerry, thank you so much. Thank you, Martin. Jerry Brewer is a sports columnist for The Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Earlier this year, President Trump signed a declaration of national emergency. That declaration took $3.6 billion away from military projects and diverted it toward building a border wall. The consequences of this are that all across the country there are construction projects that had had money allocated that now have had the money taken away uh, to pay for the border wall. My name is Aaron Gregg. I cover the defense industry for The Washington Post. And Aaron has been poring over budget documents from the Department of Defense to get a better sense of just how many projects have been canceled or delayed. What we found is that there are numerous projects across the country that really have been waiting for this construction funding for a very long time. Some of them are in a very severe state of disrepair. There's a drone facility in New Mexico where Air Force drone pilots train on how to surveil enemy territory or even conduct targeted killings in foreign countries. This facility is in such a state of disrepair that it has a bat infestation and apparently has suffered from sinkholes. In New Orleans, there's an Air Force base where fighter jets are supposed to be kept at the ready at all times to respond to a terrorist attack. But the storage bay for these jets is sinking downward. According to Air Force budget documents, the actual storage bay itself has dropped by about a foot, and that's causing it to pull loose from the electrical sockets, which creates a fire risk. There are ammunition storage facilities all across the country that don't meet the Army's standards for storage of ammunition. This puts a lot of U.S. service members at risk because they're literally handling explosives. There's a Marine base in North Carolina where they've been seeking uh, new funding for an ambulatory care center for several years now. Uh, Basically, this provides primary care services for active duty forces and anyone who is on the base. The current facility is in such a state of disrepair that it, quote, lacks basic requirements such as sinks, proper ventilation, and exam rooms with doors. So members of Congress have basically responded according to their own party lines. Democrats have sort of seized on the idea that these projects are being defunded and are turning it into an issue where they can accuse Trump of hurting the U.S. military. All the Democrats are asking for is to protect the troops from having their resources robbed for a border wall, resources that Congress 
said should go to the military. Republicans are generally going back to the same debate that we saw during the government shutdown where they are blaming the Democrats for not funding immigration in the first place. So what we see when we go to Congress is sort of the same finger pointing that you have with most any congressional debate. Military construction is one of those things that has kind of been brushed under the rug and ignored when people talk about DOD funding. So much of DOD's funding goes into new things like the F-35. However, basic things like housing or an ambulatory care center or a school often get overlooked. They're much cheaper, but they just they don't always have the same uh, cachet in Congress. They don't always have the same long-term support. So the military has insisted on calling them delayed or deferred, but in fact, they need Congress to reallocate money for these projects. It remains to be seen whether uh, funding will ever be sent back into these particular buildings that have been waiting for it for years. Aaron Gregg covers the defense industry for The Washington Post. On Wednesday, Senate Democrats are expected to force a vote to overturn the National Emergency Declaration. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you're catching up on recent episodes, check out postreports.com. That's where you can find an archive of our show and links for more information about the stories we've featured. That is postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.